Well, it is good to be with you this morning. It's good to be in the house of the Lord. Um, we've had a couple of weeks off from the study that we were starting and, and have completed a, a large portion of through the book of Deuteronomy. Um, we took a couple of weeks off to speak of Holy Week and, and Passover and the resurrection of our Lord, but now we will come back to the book of Deuteronomy and we will continue our study there. And because I have listened to the book of Deuteronomy, I know that it is important periodically to remind ourselves of the things of God. And so we should pause for just a second to remind ourselves what we had studied in Deuteronomy uh, as we took uh, just a short break from it. First, there were two major arcs that we've talked about in the book of Deuteronomy, not the Ark of the Covenant, although that is a major arc as well, but it is an arc of the book. What is the purpose of the book? And we said that there is one major purpose of the book, and that is to affirm the promise of God for his people, that there is a unilateral promise of God to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and because God has promised it, it will come true. It will always come true. God will make it so. Whether the people survive in the land, whether they are obedient to him and faithful to him, or whether they are disobedient, God will make it so. This is the word of Deuteronomy to us. Well, the book of Deuteronomy is not just that. It is also, from the very outset, said to be an explanation of the law. It desires to explain the law to us. And we have talked before about how that law is probably, in my reading of it, the Ten Commandments. And what Moses is doing is he's setting aside texts after the relating of the Ten Commandments to relate to us an explanation of each one of those commandments. We talked about how the first commandment, that you were to have no other gods beside God, was explained in chapters 6 and 7 and 8, primarily with the explanation that you are to love the Lord your God. That having no other gods beside him doesn't mean that he is just number one in the hierarchy of gods, but that there is nothing else there that you love him with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. The second commandment, then, not to have idols, not to make carved images that you consider gods, was tackled in chapters 9, 10, and 11. And we showed that through God talking about himself as a fire as he ascended on the mountain in Exodus, back in Deuteronomy chapter 4 even, as he ascended on the mountain as a fire. Therefore, you cannot make a graven image of fire. You cannot make a graven image of God. That the people were stiff-necked. They were like the gods that they loved. They made a golden calf, which was necessarily stiff-necked. They were like their gods. But you are not to be that way. God is to be able to lead you, to guide you. You are not to make images of him. And today we come upon the third commandment. We read of that third commandment back in Deuteronomy chapter 5, although we will be explaining that commandment I'm spending the vast majority of our time in Deuteronomy 12 through 14. So you can kind of keep your finger in Deuteronomy 12. We will be going back there in a second. But Deuteronomy 5, verse 11. We read from God's word that you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. This commandment deserves quite a bit of explanation. The vast majority of people, when they hear this, they think of those television shows where there is a reveal of your brand new kitchen and the people walk in and for the next five minutes, all they can do is look around, clasp their hands over their mouth, and when they let it go, it's just, oh my God, look at my kitchen, right? Or people who have to type OMG about every single thing they see because they can't think of anything better to say, right? We, we oftentimes just think of taking the name of the Lord 
in vain as simply using it flippantly. Now, it is clearly wrong to simply flippantly use the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. It is wrong, but I don't think that that's what this is talking about. Part of it comes down to what do we mean by vain? It's funny, I was talking to my wife, because uh, I, I do that every once in a while, and uh, the vanity thing came up, and, and I said that when I hear the word vain, I often think of selfishly, right? That you're doing things selfishly, that you're using them for your own purposes and your own things. And she said, no, it, it always implied to me that it was more like worthless, that it was empty, that it, it had no value to it. And I admitted briefly that she was probably correct. That's probably more like what it means. So I've got a, a Carly Simon view of the word and she's got like this biblical view of the word and so one is, is better than the other. But it means that you cannot take the name of the Lord. Notice it doesn't say you cannot speak the name of the Lord in vain, but that you cannot take the name of the Lord. God calls his people out of Egypt. And in doing so, he has placed himself in line with them. Remember the great prayer of Moses when he intercedes for the people in Exodus 32, 33, and 34. What does he say to God? God says, they've made a golden calf. I'm going to destroy them. And Moses steps in and he says, but, but you are connected to them now. If you destroy them, the Egyptians are just going to look and say, well, their God couldn't do it. But we know the truth, God. You cannot, you cannot forsake your people who have your name they have taken upon themselves the name of the Lord. Therefore, he's saying here, you cannot take it worthlessly. If I'm putting my name upon you, if you are going to be my people, you cannot end up worthless before me. You are not to do things that dishonor my name, that don't speak of me rightly. That is the purpose of saying you are not to take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Now, as we turn to chapters 12, 13, and 14, we get a further explanation of it and to hint at the fact that these chapters are actually an explanation of it. As we read through chapter 12, we're not going to read the whole of chapter 12, but as we read through part of it, listen to how often God talks about placing his name. It's very clear that chapter 12 is about where the name of, the go of God will dwell. Okay? None of the other chapters have really focused at all on the name of the Lord. But all of a sudden, in chapter 12, we have this explosion of name language. And as we read these first 19 verses of chapter 12, listen for how often God talks about placing his name somewhere and even erasing the names of the people, of the gods who dwelled there before. This is the word of the Lord from Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 1 through 19. These are the statutes and the rules that you shall be careful to do in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess all the days that you live on earth. You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods, on the high mountains and on the hills under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their asherim with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of the place." You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, but you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all of your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go, and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contributions that you present, your vow offerings, your freewill offerings, the firstborn of your herd and flock. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you 
shall rejoice, you and your households, in all that you undertake, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. You shall not do anything to all, you shall not do according to all that we are doing here today, everyone doing what is right in his own eyes. For you have not as yet come to the rest and to the inheritance that the Lord your God is giving you. But when you go over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies around so that you live in safety, then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there, there you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contributions that you present, and all your finest vow offerings that you vow to the Lord. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and your daughters and your male servants and your female servants and the Levite that is within your town, since he has no portion or inheritance with you. Take care that you do not offer your burnt offerings at any place that you see, but at the place that the Lord will choose in one of your tribes, there you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I am commanding you. However, you may slaughter and eat within any of your towns as much as you desire, according to the blessing of the Lord your God that he has given to you. The unclean and the clean may eat of it, as of the gazelle and as of the deer, only you shall not eat the blood. You shall pour it out on the earth like water. You may not eat it within your towns, the tithe of your grain or your wine or of your oil or the firstborn of the herd of your flock or any of your vow offerings that you vow or your freewill offerings or the contribution that you present, but you shall eat them before the Lord your God in the place that the Lord your God will choose, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant and the Levite who is with you in your towns. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God in all you undertake. Take care that you do not neglect the Levite as long as you live in your land. This is the word of our God. Immediately upon taking the land, God says, you are to go and you are to smash every place of worship that the pagan people who lived there before you had. You are to take them down. You are to destroy them with fire. You are not to worship God in that way. You're not going to do that. And he says specifically in verse 3, you are to take their name out of the place. That their presence is no longer there, so therefore their name is no longer there. But he gives them a warning. He says, listen, you are going to worship, but you can't think that you can just worship me wherever you would like. Right? You have to go to the place that I have said I will dwell. You have to go to the place where I will put my name. In other words, he's saying, guys, you can't just build an altar in your backyard and go and offer your sacrifices there. You can't call the Levite over and say, hey, would you let the blood of this out on the ground and then do me a favor so that I can worship God in my backyard on my grill and burn that uh, sacrifice to the Lord as my offering. God says, you can't do that. You must when you take the land, go to the place that I have set aside for that. In other words, you must find where God is worshipped. You must find where God is worshipped. They are not to, in the words of Deuteronomy, do what is right in their own eyes, which is interesting because that's the same language that comes up again and again and again in Judges. After they take the land, they do exactly what is right in their own eyes. God says that you have to find him where he is. You have to worship him where he is. And you'll notice he doesn't go into any great detail about how 
the Levites are supposed to handle these offerings. He doesn't go into detail about the sacrificial offerings, about the vow offerings, about the free will offerings, about the grain offerings, about the tithe offerings. He doesn't do that. His whole purpose is to say, when you make your offerings, when you worship God, it is to be there where I say. You want to eat? You look and you're hungry and every little sheep that passes by, all you see is a little pork chop. Not pork chop, sheep chop. I don't know, what the lamb chop. When you don't eat the pork, we'll get around to the pork thing. You can't eat that. We'll get to chapter 14 in a second. But you see that little lamb chop? He says, you slaughter it, you eat it, that's great. But you cannot think for a second that in slaughtering it and eating it, that you can take a portion of it as an offering and burn it in your backyard. You have to go where I am found and I will only be found where I have said I will be found. Now we know, we know, that where he says he will be found is eventually going to be Jerusalem. It is the temple of God. Right now, he is being passed along in a tent, right? They, they go through this elaborate detail. We just read this in our, in our family, this elaborate detail of making the curtains, embroidering the curtains, making hoops on everything so that the altar can be carried around or the table can be carried around, excuse me, the Ark of the Covenant can be carried around. They can pack it up, probably not terribly quickly. This isn't a one-man operation, but they can pack it up and they can move it with them. Eventually, they're going to come, and each tribe is going to be in their own place, but they will eventually coalesce into Jerusalem. They will coalesce into Jerusalem because they will appoint a king there, and David will eventually come to God and say, let's build you a house. And God will say, slow down, your son will do it. And so Solomon builds the temple. Now, it's easy for us to think that, hey, then, what Deuteronomy is saying is that we need to offer our sacrifices in the temple. And the fact that Christians don't do this means that we're not taking the word of Deuteronomy correctly or truly. But we say, no, no, we have the book of John. And in John chapter 4, Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman, and he confronts her in her sin, and she sort of changes the topic a little bit. And this is what the, the relationship between the woman and where they worship is explained in John 4, verses 19 to 24. The woman said to Jesus, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. They're in Samaria. They worshipped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. In other words, you say Deuteronomy 12. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you don't know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The emphasis there is in spirit and in truth, not in Jerusalem. Okay, so we, we read that, think, all right, so what Jesus is telling us is that let's head for the hills, right? We're going to go to the hills, we're going to camp outside, we're going to stare up at the stars, we're going to stare at the trees, we're going to stare at the rivers, we're going to say, hey, this is gorgeous and beautiful and wonderful, and I can praise and worship God here, and I can do that because John 4 says, I don't need to go to a place, I simply need to know Jesus, and then I can worship him wherever. Dude, emphatically, no. Now, there is a point of that, that you do get to worship God wherever. But there is truth in the fact that God is still worshipped in a place. And as a matter of fact, John makes it abundantly clear that that is not at all what John 4 can possibly meant because before John 4, there was John 1 and John 2. And in John 1, he says this, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
that word dwelt is like the word for tented. He tented among us, which is the same word used for the tabernacle. He literally is a curtained tent in the flesh now. Just as God was present in the tabernacle, now God is present in Jesus. That tabernacle, which would eventually become the temple, which in John 2, we have Jesus saying this. After he cleanses the temple, drives out the people from the temple, the people come to him, the Jews come to him and say, what sign do you show us for doing these things? How do we know that you're actually allowed to drive people out of the temple? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build the temple and you'll raise it up in three days? But, John says, he was speaking about the temple of his body where, therefore, he was raised from the dead. His disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. That is, John at first says that he was the tabernacle, then he changes it to being Jesus as the temple. So when Deuteronomy says, you are to go to the place where my name is dwelt, the New Testament says that is Jesus. Okay? Right, so people who want to argue with me on this would then say, okay, but I still worship Jesus in the hills and the mountains and in my tent, right? So I cook hamburgers in the morning, it's all good, right? And we can look up and we can worship God out in nature. But the New Testament has more to say than that. The New Testament talks about the temple of God. So remember, the imagery that we have is temple, tabernacle, where God is. Jesus is the temple and the tabernacle. And now listen to how the people of God are referred to as both temple, as tabernacle. They're referred to as a, a building being built up for God. They're described as the body of Christ. They're described as the bride of Christ. They're uniquely united to Christ in all ways. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 through 17. Do you not know that you are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you? That is not you singular. So if we were in the south, there's only a handful of things that the south has on the north. One of them is that they will deep fry anything. And it is a beautiful thing. The second is sweet tea, which I, I like. I like northern tea, but uh, dude, you put tons of sugar in tea and it's awesome. And the third thing is they use the word y'all, which isn't, awesome always, but it's hopefully biblically because this is y'all, okay? It's everybody. It's not singular. In the north, we would just say you guys, if you go far enough north, right? So um, he says, do you guys not know that you are temp God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you all? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and you are that temple, all of you are that temple. You yourself are not that temple. You are that temple because you are bricks being built into the temple of God. 1 Corinthians 12, 27. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Ephesians 5, 25 through 32. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, not without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. And here is... Thing that we're trying to get to. For no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Okay? So he makes the analogy 
Husbands are to love their wives because Christ loved the church. You are the body of Christ. Therefore, because you don't hate your body, you are to love your wife in the same way Christ loves the church because the church is his body. And then he quotes Genesis, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. 1 Peter 2, 4 through 10, As you come to him, a living stone, Christ being a living stone, rejected by men in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. The tabernacle, which David wanted to get rid of to build a temple, was referred to David. That temple was referred to David not just with the word temple, but with the word house. To be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For as it stands in Scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You were once not a people, now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but you have now received mercy. Where is God found? He's found in his temple. Where is his temple? It is the people who assign themselves to Jesus Christ. You don't find him floating out in the world You don't find him doing whatever you please out in the world. You find him in the church. This is where you find him. You find him because the church is the deposit of Scripture. Scripture is given to not just you, it's given to the church. This is why the New Testament continually affirms all of those one another's. You are to bear with one another. You are to forgive one another. You are to love one another. You are to encourage one another. You are to offer, as he says, spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God in the temple, which he just got done describing as the body of believers, the body of Christ. If you would find God, you would find him here. Here. Second, We must listen to God's voice. Let's read Deuteronomy 13. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice. And you shall serve him and hold fast to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. If your brother, the son of your mother, or your son, or your daughter, or the wife you embrace, or the friend who is as your own soul, entices you secretly saying, let us go and serve other gods which neither you nor your fathers have known, some of the gods of the peoples who are around you, whether near or far off from you. 
From the one end of the earth to the other, you shall not yield to him or listen to him, nor shall your eye pity him. You shall not spare him, nor shall you conceal him, but you shall kill him. Your hand shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. You shall stone him to death with stones, because he sought to draw you away from the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And all Israel shall hear and fear and never again do any such wickedness as this among you. If you hear in one of your cities, which the Lord your God is giving you to dwell there, that certain worthless fellows have gone out among you and have drawn away the inhabitants of the city, saying, Let us go and serve other gods which you have not known. Then you shall inquire and make search and ask diligently, and behold, if it be true that certain and such, a, and certain that such an abomination has been done among you, you shall, sur- you shall surely put the inhabitants of that city to the sword, devoting it to destruction all who are in it and its cattle. With the edge of the sword, you shall gather all its spoil into the midst of the open square and burn the city and all its spoil with fire as a whole burnt offering to the Lord your God. It shall be a heap forever. It shall not be built again. None of the devoted things shall stick to your hand that the Lord may turn from the fierceness of his anger and show you mercy and have compassion on you and multiply you as he swore to your fathers. If you obey the voice of the Lord your God, keeping all his commandments that I am commanding you today and doing what is right in the sight of the Lord your God. You hear how he begins that. He says, listen, there's going to be people, they're going to rise up and they're going to do marvels. They're going to say, you should listen to me. You're going to say, well, why should I listen to you? And he's going to perform a magic trick, only it's unlike any magic trick you've ever seen, and he is going to do signs, and he is going to do wonders, and he's going to say, listen, I have demonstrated to you powerfully that what I say is true. You come and you worship Mammon. You come and you worship Baal. You come and you worship Moloch. You come and you worship science with me. You come and do that, because I've demonstrated to you the power and the glory of my God. God says, you are not to listen to him. He turns to not just displays of power, but displays of connection and relationship. And he says, listen, the brother, not just your brother, but the brother, the son of your mama, that, that one who is dear to you, the wife, not just your wife, but the wife you embrace, the wife you love, the wife you cherish, not just the friend, but the friend who as close as your own soul. You are like one. You think alike. You, you strive to be the same type of person. You are closer to him than you are to anyone else in the world. He says, if he should whisper in your ear, you are to worship other gods with me. God says, no, you are to listen to my voice whether it be through a display of power, whether it be from someone who is intimately connected with you, whether it even be some worthless people in some far-off city, you are not to be led astray, but you are to listen to the word of God that has come to them. The question becomes, how are they supposed to know this, right? If this was simply being passed down by mouth, how are they supposed to know this? Here is the great key to all of it. It wasn't just passed down, it was written for them. They don't have to rely on oral tradition. They, they don't have to rely simply, simply on their own conscience. 
They have the written word of God. They can hear the voice of God speaking to them through the word. You know what God wills for you. You know that God does not want you to be led astray to worship other gods because God has spoken and said, you shall have no God beside me. And more than that, it was written for you. We have the written word of God. Let us listen to it carefully. Listen to God's voice. And third, we need to identify as God's people. Chapter 14. You are the sons of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourselves or make any baldness on your foreheads for the dead. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. You shall not eat any abomination. There are animals that you may eat, the ox, the sheep, the goat, the deer, the gazelle, the roebuck, the wild goat, the ibex, the antelope, and the mountain sheep. Every animal that parts the hoof and has the hoof cloven in two and chews the cud among the animals you may eat. Yet, those who chew the cud or have the hoof cloven, you shall not eat these, the camel, the hare, the rock badger, because they chew the cud, but do not part the hoof and are unclean for you. And the pig, because it parts the hoof, but does not chew the cud, is unclean for you. Their flesh you shall not eat, and their carcasses you shall not touch. Of all that are in the waters you may eat these. Whatever has fins and scales you may eat. Whatever does not have fins and does not have scales you shall not eat, for it is unclean to you. You may eat all clean birds, but these are the ones that you shall not eat. The eagle, the bearded vulture, the black vulture, the kite, the falcon of any kind, every raven of any kind, the ostrich, the nighthawk, the seagull, the hawk of any kind, the little owl and the short-eared owl, the barn owl and the tawny owl, the carrion vulture and the cormorant, the stork, the heron of any kind, the hoopoe and the bat. All the winged insects are unclean for you. They shall not be eaten, thank the Lord. All clean winged things you may eat. You shall not eat anything that has died naturally. You may give it to the sojourner who is with you in your towns, and he may eat of it, or you shall sell it to a foreigner, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Dude, that's weird. <laughs> right? He, he gives all of these very clear pointed facts about what you can and what you can't eat. And people, for a long time, have, have tried to like piece together why is it that you can eat some animals, but you can't others? Most of these come down to just thinking that the people of Israel or the people that surrounded the people of Israel were stupid or something. Like, he did it for health reasons, right? Listen, you got to cook lamb just as much as you got to cook pork, right? Like, he could have easily just said, okay, you want to eat shrimp? Put it in the pot, boil it till it's red. Like, that's easier than what is written here. Right? He could have told them how to eat it healthfully. He could have given a more full explanation. You will notice as you come to the text that there is absolutely nothing in there about why God has chosen what he's chosen to make good and right and holy for you to eat, and he has left other things out. The only explanation is simply that I said so because it's got split hooves. I don't, that's not the universal sign for it, but we'll go with that. Split hooves, and they chew the cud. Right? That's the only explanation for the fish. It has fins. And it's got um, scales, and so therefore you can eat it. This, it's, it's arbitrary. It's okay. It's arbitrary. What does he say at the end? He says, for you are a people holy to me. We think that this is so incredibly weird. Do you realize that we identify people all the time by what they eat? And if you 
are going to be God's people, if you are going to carry his name in a worthy manner, you must identify as God's people. You must identify as God's people. And so what is he doing, right? When It's not that everyone who eats sushi is Japanese, but when you hear of the word sushi, you immediately think of the Japanese people. You should. You shouldn't think of the sign that I posted in Sunday school about the free sushi or whatever. You need to think about good sushi. You think about the Japanese people. When you think of things that aren't actually Chinese food, like General Tso's chicken, well, when you think of that, you think of the Chinese. When you think of pasta, you think of the Italians. When you think of sauerkraut, you think of the Germans. When you think of bad food, you think of the English. When you think of barbecue, you think of America. When you think of pie, you think of America. When you think of any good food, you think of America, right? So we can clearly identify peoples by the food they eat. This is totally normal. It's not weird. It's normal. He is saying, you are my people, and one of the ways you will know that you are my people is because you eat differently. Now, for Southern Baptists, the greatest passage in Scripture comes in the form of Mark 7, Matthew 15, when Jesus declares all food clean and we gather together to have a potluck before our business meeting and we say amen to it, right? So the question becomes, why does God identify people by the food they eat here? Why are we identified? Why is Israel identified in the Old Testament by the food they eat? And then Jesus comes along and says, none of it matters. It's all clean. You're not defiled by eating it. But no longer does it seem like we are actually identified by the food we eat but you are mistaken. You are always identified by the food you eat. If you were to turn to Matthew, you would find in Matthew 14 and then into 15, there's a similar pattern to what we're going to talk about in the book of John. The pattern works like this. In Matthew 14, you have the feeding of the 5,000, then you have Jesus walking on water, and then you have Jesus declaring all foods clean. In John 6, you have a similar pattern but you have it changed. You have Jesus feeding the 5,000. You have Jesus walking on water and then Jesus talking about not what, that you can eat all foods, but that you must eat this food. It's the exact same pattern. What Matthew says, this is not important. John comes along because he has read the gospel of Matthew because he's writing a supplement to the gospel of Matthew that stands on its own. He knows what Matthew says and he comes in and he says, it's not enough simply to affirm what you can't eat, but to affirm what you must eat. And Jesus stands up before the people and says this in John 6, 53 through 58, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. And as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. And it's not just, it's not just that you eat the bread, but in eating the bread, you identify with Christ. You abide in me. We always, through the food we eat, identify with something. And Christ says, John says, if you take the Lord's Supper, you are identifying with Christ. You are drinking his blood. You are eating his body. You are identifying just as much as any Israelite who said, I will never touch pork. I'll never eat pork. You are just as strongly identifying with Jesus Christ by eating the Lord's Supper. Now, something that's even more important, even more important than that. If you talk to Jewish scholars, if you talk to Jews today, 
they will mention two things about Jesus that's very odd. And I hadn't always thought about this, but I came across it this week and it was interesting and so I will pass it on to you because I think that it will strengthen this. You look into the Old Testament, blood is everywhere. The atonement was made by blood. You cut open that sheep's neck and you drained the blood. Again, in a passage that we read in our household just this past week in Exodus 24, verses 6 through 8, listen to how the blood is everywhere. Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins. Doesn't matter what size, if you can put blood in a basin, it's big, right? And it's not just a basin, it's basins. It doesn't say how many, but there's a lot of blood, right? He put the blood in basins. Half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they all said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant of the Lord has made with you in accordance with these words. There's blood everywhere. There's blood on the altar. There's blood in your hair. There's blood in your clothes. There's only one place where there's not blood and that is in your mouth. You cannot, you cannot drink the blood of the sacrifices. If you go back to chapter 12, you'll notice that this is mentioned several times. In 12, verse 16, only you shall not eat the blood. You shall pour it out on the earth like water. 23 through 25, only be sure that you do not eat the blood, for the blood is the life, and you shall not eat the life with the flesh. You shall not eat it. You shall pour it out on the earth like water. You shall not eat it. You shall not eat it again and again that all may go well with you and your children after you when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. Two things that are important about that. One, Jesus clearly says, you drink my blood. And two, there's almost no blood on the cross. We call it a sacrifice, right? But Jewish believers point at that and they say the whole point of crucifixion, the whole point is a long, agonizing death the quickest way to kill somebody is to let their blood, brain injury, right? So there's other quick ways. But if there was massive hemorrhaging of blood, the kind of which we find in the sacrifices of the Old Testament, that's quick death. Now, sure, Jesus lost blood. You poke nails through you, you're going to lose blood, right? There was bleeding from his head from the crown. There was a poke in the side and blood and water come out. There was blood loss, but not the kind of blood loss that you find filling basins in the Old Testament, they say it wasn't a sacrifice and you're wrong because you drink the blood. We say, no, you don't understand. The fact that we drink the blood shows that the blood was spilled. That blood is not just poured out on the ground. Why are they not allowed to drink the blood of sheep and goats? When you let, when you cut the throat of a sheep and you let the blood drain out, he says you're letting the life drain out of it. But you cannot have that life because that life is not yours. The sheep postponed your death He stood in for you to die, but he is not the way that you are to live. There is a difference between living and not dying. And you were simply put off by the mercy of God from your own death by allowing that sacrifice to take your place, but in no way, shape, or form were you to ever think that that sacrifice gave you life. It simply postponed death. But when we come up to the New Testament, what do we find? Jesus says, I give you life. And so he gives you blood, and you drink his blood. You are not just identifying with God. You are becoming one with him. His life flows through you now in the way that sheep and rams and goats could never, 
ever offer you. We are Christians means little Christs. We are the body of Jesus Christ gathered together. It is good that we are here to hear the word of the Lord. You have found him, listen to his voice, and identify as his people. It is good that we are here this morning. But remember, we do all of these things. We do them because God is gracious and merciful to us. He has called us into a relationship with him. We are not earning anything. We are not making ourselves more holy by any of the actions we take, but instead we are making much of his name. Far from calling ourselves Christians and walking worthlessly in him, we do these things because we think it magnifies and makes much of the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. In the words of Ephesians 4.1, we walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. Let us continue that for now and always. Let us pray. Father God, you are kind and good to us in all things. And you have given us your son as a sacrifice for our sins that we might not die. And you have given us his blood that we might live before you always. You have given us through your spirit the word that we might listen to your voice and know it and understand it. And you have also given us the church that we might know where to find you. Father God, all of these gifts are so good to us. May we not neglect them. May we not put them aside and think that we might do these things alone and be holy before you. For Father, such things are worthless. But let us do what you have commanded to us and so walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would stand and sing our hymn of benediction.